0: You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Man's enemy is personal sin and not a supernatural devil. That is the title of today's episode. The subject of the devil is one which has long played sincere Christians as they have been taught that the devil is a personal being existing in a fiery hell to torment erring individuals after death. The Bible, however, reveals a totally different picture that sin commences within the mind of man due to his own sin prone nature. And that Jesus Christ has overcome the power of sin by destroying it in his own body and so by this means salvation is freely available to everyone who repents and takes on the thinking of a spiritual mind, the mind of Christ and ultimately
1: the mind of God. Man's enemy is personal sin and not a supernatural devil And our topic tonight is one of great importance because it's associated with the work of Jesus Christ. The message of the Bible is known as the Gospel, and it teaches us about God's message of salvation. And the Bible defines the Gospel as the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So to have a correct understanding of God's plan of salvation, requires you to have a correct understanding of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, in view of that, I'd like you to consider the following quotations from the New Testament. So, in the first epistle of John, chapter 3, verse 8, we read this. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, we read, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, also himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy him that has the power of death, that is the devil. So you can see from these two passages that the devil is a subject that is closely aligned with the work of Jesus Christ. So therefore, in discussing the subject of the devil, We are in fact discussing a subject that is a core part of the gospel message and salvation in Jesus Christ. It's a subject of great importance. When we speak about the devil, or a supernatural devil, as you can see on the screen, what are we really talking about? For many people in Christianity, the concept of the devil is really something like this. Here's just a simple definition that I pulled from the internet. The devil is an angel, supposedly, who along with one third of the angelic host, rebelled against God and has been consequently condemned to the lake of fire. He is described as hating all humanity or creation, opposing God, spreading lies and wreaking havoc on people's souls. And the image that you can see on the screen is a depiction of what many consider the devil to look like, a very evil creature. Now, there are variations to this idea amongst Christian religions, as well as other non-Christian religions. But fundamentally, they align quite closely with what you can see on the screen there. But what we're going to see this evening is that this concept is far from biblical, and far from our enemy being an immortal monster it's in fact lies within each one of us it's our own sin proneness so to begin we're going to look at how sin entered into the world so our story begins in the book of genesis this is the first book of the bible and it's a book of beginnings in many ways particularly Genesis chapter 1 to 3, which lays the foundation of the rest of God's purpose with all mankind and throughout the Bible. When God created the world, we're told many times in Genesis chapter 1 that his creation was very good. Adam and Eve, who were the first created people, lived in a garden called the Garden of Eden, which was a paradise on earth. All creation was in harmony with God. Adam and Eve enjoyed open communication and interaction with the angels, God's messengers. And Adam was also given the responsibility of looking after the garden that God had placed him in. He was not only to look after the plants and animals, but he was to have dominion over the creation. That is, dominion in a moral sense. And in the process of time, God gave Adam a law. We read of this in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. So you can read that on the screen and I'll read it to you. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So Adam and Eve were allowed to freely eat of any tree in the garden which God had made, except for one, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they ate of this tree, death would come as a consequence of disobedience. And when God subsequently created Eve, this law would become binding on her also. Now in the process of time, Adam and Eve's obedience for God would need to be put to the test. If they had been left to themselves, obedience would have followed as a matter of course. Because at this point in time, sin had not been introduced to the world and so Adam and Eve had no bias to sin. But it's not this sort of obedience that God is looking for in his creation. It's obedience under trial that is important to God because it's this kind of obedience that shows whether or not someone loves God So for their obedience to be tested, it would require the plausible enticement of an external tempter. And we read of this in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die? For God does know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. So these verses on the screen show us that the external tempter who posed a temptation to Adam and Eve was the serpent. God had given the serpent the power of reason and speech for the simple purpose of putting Adam and Eve to the test. And the serpent challenged what God said by putting the proposition to Adam and Eve that if they disobeyed God and ate of the tree which he commanded them not to eat of, that death would not in fact come as a consequence, but rather Adam and Eve would become wiser. Well, as you can see, Eve contemplated what the serpent said and she ended up taking of the tree and and eating the fruit and gave to Adam and he ate also. Now it's important to keep in mind that when the serpent challenged God's law and told Adam and Eve that what God was saying wasn't true, that this was not a sin on the part of the serpent. Sin is a moral transgression, a disobedience of God's law. But the reason why the serpent's lie was not a sin is because the serpent was an amoral creature. That is, a creature incapable of expressing itself in moral terms or understanding moral terms. The serpent did not have a conscience to accuse or to excuse its actions. It was simply a beast of the field that had been given the power of reason and speech. And so when we read of its lie, it was not a deliberate or a malicious lie. It couldn't be, because to tell a deliberate or a malicious lie is to be immoral. The serpent could not be immoral. Its lie was simply something that it thought, which was not sinful for the serpent because it was an animal, but it was still a lie because it was the opposite of what God had said. But when man, Adam and Eve, who were moral creatures, who could exercise a conscience to accuse or excuse their actions, when man who was a moral creature adopted the serpent's mode of thinking, it resulted in sin entering into the world because they were capable of knowing better. So sin entered into the world by man and not by the serpent. And as a result of sin, God, through his angels, placed a curse upon the serpent, on Adam and Eve, and on creation. There were consequences for their sin. Adam and Eve would have to bear responsibility for their actions. And we read of this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 to 23, which I'll read for you now. The Lord God said unto the serpent... Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. Dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skin, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So Adam and Eve now found themselves in an environment of evil. They were banished from Eden and from the presence of God from the presence of the angels who they had once enjoyed open communication with. The beautiful paradise of Eden, and in fact all creation, was now cursed, and ultimately death would come as a consequence for Adam and Eve. But they were not to die straight away. They were stricken with mortality, but the, and they were to become subject to hard labour and sorrow for a period of time and eventually they would grow old and then die. And the purpose that God had in doing this was to create an opportunity, a window of time, to allow Adam and Eve to turn back to him. Death would one day come, but not immediately. But an additional consequence of Adam and Eve's sin, because they had adopted the serpent's mode of thinking, was that they were now sin-prone, That is, they had a bias in their nature to sin. They would now no longer think as God had intended them to think. And they went from being very good to being evil continually. There would be a continual conflict in their mind between good and evil. And all mankind who descended from them would be brought under this curse. Mortality and a proneness to sin. And this is taught right throughout the Bible. There are many passages which speak of the evil instincts in us by birth. For example, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23, the prophet Jeremiah says, O Lord, it is not in man that walketh, it is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Men cannot of their own selves take a straight course, that is, in a moral sense. And in Jeremiah 17, verse nine, Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. In the book of Job, chapter 14, verse one, man that is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. And in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ says in the gospel of Mark, chapter seven and verse 20 to 23, That which comes out of the man that defileth the man for from within out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts adulteries fornications murders thefts covetousness wickedness deceit lasciviousness an evil eye blasphemy pride foolishness all these evil things come from within and these defile the man. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 verse 12 says, Let not sin reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. In other words, there's a conflict within you. Don't give way to sin. And the Apostle James in James chapter 1 verse 14 and 15 says, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. When lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So sin entered into the world by man, and the source of evil is from within man. So in light of what we've considered so far, you can see why the concept of a fallen angel, a devil, who entices mankind to sin and who defies God, just doesn't fit with what the Bible says about the origin of sin. And there are a number of reasons. Firstly, we saw in the Garden of Eden how Adam and Eve bore responsibility for their own actions. They couldn't blame someone else, even though they tried to. The idea of a devil is really a scapegoat. People like to believe in a devil because they can pass off the responsibility for sin and don't have to take accountability for their actions. That, however, is wrong. All mankind bears responsibility for his actions, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. The concept of a devil actually becomes quite redundant when you understand that sin is the responsibility of man. A second reason why the concept of a devil doesn't work is because it would be unrighteous of God to punish mankind for sin if, if in fact, it wasn't their fault. But God is always righteous, and he punished Adam and Eve in his righteousness because they were responsible for sin. Thirdly, Adam and Eve's sin brought death. Death will always be the consequence for sin. The idea, therefore, of an angel who is immortal, but also a sinner, doesn't work. That's inconsistent. Sin always brings death, as Romans 6 verse 23 says. The wages of sin is death. Furthermore, we know in Luke chapter 10 verse 35 that angels cannot die. Therefore, angels cannot sin. And this is further confirmed for us in Genesis 3, which we read a moment ago. When Adam and Eve had partaken of the fruit and had come to know good and evil, they were driven from the garden. Why? Why? Because the angels said that they are become as one of us to know good and evil. Now, lest they put forth their hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent them forth from the garden to till the ground from whence they were taken. So Adam and Eve were forbidden for living, from living forever. And they were barred access to the tree of life because of their disobedience. They now had a conflict within themselves between good and evil, and that conflict would make them incompatible with immortality. So the idea of an immortal sinner is really an impossibility. Fourthly, in the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, and verse 10, Jesus instructs his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, if God's will is done in heaven, then clearly rebellions don't take place in heaven. The idea of an angel rebelling against God and getting kicked out of heaven for doing so is quite ridiculous. Heaven is a place where God dwells and where God's will has always been done and always will be done. And lastly, the concept of a devil doesn't make sense when we consider the power of God. The Bible teaches that God is omnipotent, that is, he is all-powerful. The book of Daniel, chapter 4, and verse 34 to 35 says this, The Most High God liveth forever and ever, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? So you see, the concept of a devil who could rebel against God and whom God can't control is a total mockery of God's power, as though God is somehow helpless and can't do anything about it. The Bible teaches quite the opposite. God is all-powerful and would not allow such a creature as the devil to exist. So you might ask yourself a question at this point. If it's really also clear and simple that the idea of a devil just simply doesn't fit with what the Bible says concerning sin, why do some people believe that there is even a devil at all? And the answer is because the word devil does occur in a number of places in the Bible, as does the word Satan. However, neither of those words mean what people commonly think they mean. You know, whenever the common English reader encounters the word devil or Satan, a picture comes to mind of a monster with hooves and horns, a tail, bloodshot eyes and a fiery sceptre. And perhaps a vivid imagination would give you the hissing of fire and smoke and the clanking of chains and general accessories of satanic dignity. The word has earned itself that reputation and meaning outside of the Bible but when it, and whenever people see it in the Bible they immediately think that the Bible is giving countenance to the idea. But that's not the case. To know what the devil means in the Bible we have to come to the Bible with an open mind. With no preconceptions we just have to let the Bible speak to us And this involves looking at the meaning of words, but more importantly, letting the context of a verse dictate how we interpret that verse. Both the context of the verse and the wider context of scripture. And that way we can determine that our conclusion that we reach is from the Bible and not our own interpretation. So we have a Bible in front of us in English. But the Bible was originally written in two languages, the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. So we have to go back and look at the original meaning of Greek and Hebrew words to discover what the meaning of the word rendered devil in English really is. And this is very simple to do. We can use a Bible dictionary or a concordance. These are books which are written by scholars of the Hebrew and Greek language and they're able to accurately define for us the meaning of Hebrew and Greek words. So, what does the words devil and Satan mean in both the Old and the New Testament? Well in the Old Testament the word devil occurs four times. If we were to look up Strong's Concordance which is a common concordance easily available to you, you would see that the word devil occurs four times in the Old Testament. Now the first of these is the word I probably am not pronouncing that right at all but that doesn't matter. You can see the pronunciation on the screen. This word occurs in two places. Leviticus 17 verse 7 and Chronicles 11 verse 15. Second Chronicles. I've forgotten to put that on the screen. So Leviticus 17 verse 7 says this. And they, that is the nation of Israel, Shall no more offer their sacrifices unto devils, that's our word, after whom they have gone a whoring. So in that verse, devil simply means an idol, a false god from one of the nations around Israel in Old Testament times. 2 Chronicles 11, verse 15, which is the other reference that we have up there. And he, that is King Rehoboam of Israel, ordained him priests for the high places and for the devils and for the calves which he had made. So you can see from the context of that verse that once again the meaning of the word devil is simply an idol. Now the other Hebrew word is the word shed. probably also pronounced that wrong. It means demon and is closely associated with the idea of a false god or an idol. A demon was one of the false gods of the nations which surrounded Israel. And those nations would make statues which they believed represented various demonic deities. Of course, it's all superstition. And the demon that the idol represented didn't have any actual existence. However, people still sacrificed to these idols as though the demon they represented was in fact true. And there are two references which mention the word devil. Deuteronomy 32 verse 17 and Psalm 106 verse 37. So Deuteronomy 32 verse 17 says, They, that is the nation of Israel, sacrificed unto devils, false gods, not to God, to gods whom they knew not. And Psalm 106 verse 37 says a very similar thing. The nation of Israel again sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils. So, very simply, both of the Old Testament words, which are rendered devil in English, are simply making reference to idols, false gods, whom the nations around Israel worshipped. And because Israel copied their practices, they found themselves worshipping idols also. But nowhere in the Old Testament, In the use of the word devil, did we see any reference to a fallen angel? The idea is simply not true. What about the word Satan in the Old Testament? Well, it occurs 19 times in the Old Testament, and it simply means adversary. Now, in some cases, the word Satan has been translated as adversary, and in some cases, it's been copied directly from the Hebrew into the English, and it's rendered as Satan. But in either case, it still means adversary. To be consistent, the translators should have translated it as adversary every single time, but they haven't. Now, a few examples of the use of the word Satan is 1 Kings 5 verse 4. So this tells us about King Solomon of Israel, who's writing to Hiram, king of Tyre. Tyre was a neighboring kingdom to Israel. And Solomon says to Hiram, The Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurrent. So the word adversary in that verse is the word Satan. Solomon says to Hiram, I don't have any enemies surrounding me. Solomon was a king who had a peaceful reign. I don't have any enemies surrounding me. There are no adversaries around Israel. The word Satan simply means adversary. What about an example where the word is left untranslated? And Satan just appears as Satan in the English and hasn't been translated as adversary. Well, the book of Job offers us an example of that. The word Satan occurs many times in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. Job chapter 1 verse 6, which is the first occurrence of those references, says this. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. If you don't haven't heard of the man Job, he was a faithful worshipper of God. And one day he, together with his companions, came to worship God. But we're told in Job chapter 1 that Satan came among them. Now, many people latch onto this verse and say, see, it says it mentions satan the bible is endorsing the concept of a fallen angel well no just because the word is left untranslated doesn't prove anything the word still means adversary and if it had have been translated as adversary every time the connotation of a fallen angel would be completely pulled out of the verse and so people might say well what about the phrase sons of god doesn't that mean angels So, if we have an adversary appearing amongst angels, then surely this is teaching the idea of a fallen or rebellious angel. Well, the phrase sons of God does refer to angels, but it can also refer to men. Genesis 2 verse 6 and 1 John 3 verse 1 to 2 demonstrate that to us. We've already shown earlier in our talk how the idea of a sinning angel is an impossibility for a number of reasons. So this verse cannot be teaching this and when we look at the wider context of Job chapter 1 and 2 what we simply find is that the adversary or the Satan who presented himself with Job was simply a mortal man, someone who was cynical and opposed to Job and the mention of the sons of God is simply referring to mortal worshippers of whom Job was one. And an exercise that you might like to do if you'd like to look into this further in your own time is you can read the account in Genesis 4 of Cain and Abel who also came to worship God. And what you'll find is that there are a large number of parallels between the story of Cain and Abel worshipping God and Job and his companions. And the conclusion that that helps you to reach is that when we read in the book of Job of the Satan who came with the sons of God that we're simply reading of a mortal adversary who came amongst men who were worshipping God. So that's Satan in the Old Testament. It simply means adversary. But what about Satan in the New Testament? It's once again a very similar word to the Hebrew word. It's the Greek word satanus and it too means adversary. I've just got one quote there to demonstrate that to you, which is in Mark 8, verse 33. Now, this verse is where Jesus is talking to the Apostle Peter. And Peter was trying to discourage Jesus from taking a certain course of action. And Jesus wanted to take that course of action. So he turns to Peter and says in Mark 8, verse 33, Get thee behind me, Satan. In other words, Peter. Peter. You're being an adversary, you're hindering me. So the word Satan there is applied to a mortal man. In this case, the Apostle Peter. It's got no reference to a fallen angel. You can look up the other occurrences of the word Satan in the New Testament in your own time. But what you'll find in every case is that it simply means adversary. And that that's a very logical definition in the context of the verses in which it occurs. So, what you would also find is that sometimes the word is given a personality. That's simply the use of personification. Many things, in fact, are personified in the Bible. So, we come now to the bottom section of the screen, the word devil in the New Testament. What does it mean? Well, there are two Greek words rendered devil in the New Testament. The first of these is the word daimonion which means demon and it's simply making reference to mental illness. You see superstitious people in the times of the New Testament believed that when a person had a mental illness they were in fact possessed by a demonic spirit. Now that's just completely superstitious but when you read of the word daimonion or demon in the bible the bible isn't giving countenance to the idea it's simply using the language of its time so just a few references matthew chapter 10 and mark chapter 7 this is what they say about the word daimonion which is rendered devil in english matthew 10 verse 8 jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says heal the sick cleanse the lepers raise the dead cast out demons or devils And Mark chapter 7 verse 29, talking to a man whose daughter had just been healed, Jesus says, go thy way, the devil or the demon is gone out of thy daughter. And in Luke 9 verse 1, I've forgotten to put that reference on the screen, Jesus says to his 12 disciples, he calls them together and he gives them power and authority over all demons or devils and to cure diseases. So you can see from those three verses that a demon or a devil is simply referring to a mental illness. The last word that we want to look at is the word diabolos, which means false accuser. Two references which demonstrate that to us. Well, That word is also sometimes rendered devil but it's also sometimes rendered false accuser. The translators haven't been consistent. John 6, verse 70, Jesus says to his disciples, Have not I chosen, one, chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? That's our word, diabolos, and it simply means a false accuser. And the false accuser in question in this verse is Judas Iscariot, as the next verse of that chapter shows. And in Titus 2, verse 3, our last reference on the screen there, the Apostle Paul is giving instruction to the man Titus, about how people should behave in the Christian community. And he says, The aged women must be in behaviour as becometh holiness, not false accusers. That's the word diabolos. Not given to wine, teachers of good things. So the word false accuser is simply the word diabolos. And as you can see, in none of the references that we've looked at, does the word devil or Satan teach the idea of a fallen angel? But we want to look a little bit more at this word diabolos. What we find is that it's used in quite a wide variety of ways in the New Testament. And what we can establish about the word diabolos is also established about sin. And so they're talking really about one and the same thing. So in Hebrews 2 verse 14, we learn that the devil or the diabolos has the power of death. We're told in Romans 5 verse 12 that by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. So sin has the power of death. In Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. And in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 56, the sting of death is sin. So sin has the power of death, but the diabolos has the power of death. They're one and the same thing. And another point of comparison is in 1 John 3 verse 8 where we're told that Jesus Christ was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. And three verses earlier in the same chapter, we're told that he was manifested to take away our sins. So our sins, or the works of the devil, is one and the same thing. So what's affirmed of diabolos is also affirmed of sin. Now, we made a point earlier that the word diabolos means false accuser. So you might ask a question, why would sin be continuously referred to in the New Testament as a false accuser? Well, this takes us back to what we looked at at the beginning of our talk in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember how we saw that sin entered the world when mankind adopted the serpent's mode of thinking? And the serpent was a false accuser because it falsely accused God of not telling the truth. It was the serpent's accusation of God that was at the root of everything else that followed in Eden, which led to sin entering into the world. So that's why sin, which in turn developed in the mind of man and is manifest in many ways in people's lives, sin can be described as a false accuser. Sin is the great slander against God. It's the force within each one of us that denies God's supremacy, his wisdom, and his goodness. The serpent in the Garden of Eden has long since passed away in the course of nature, but the fruits of its lie and the principle still lives on as serpent thinking in the mind of men. And so what we find is that this word diabolos, or false accuser, is used in many different ways to describe the different manifestations of sin in the New Testament. And what you'll find is in many of those instances sin is spoken of as though it has a personality. The reason for that is that this helps us to understand that although sin is manifested in many different forms it has one character. Now I've summarised for you on the screen there the five different ways in which the word false accuser is used. We're not going to look at all of those references. Um, but you might like to make an exercise for yourself to go through and look at the different words devil in the New Testament and you could make that table for yourself. But it shows simply that the word diabolos is simply referring to sin in its manifestations among men. It's never ever referring to a fallen angel. So if we can conclude that our great enemy is in fact sin and that that is in fact the cause of all evil in the world, the next question becomes how can we be freed from sin? Surely we're not going to be bound by this forever. And this brings us back to where we started in the Garden of Eden. You might recall in Genesis chapter 3 when we looked at the consequences that came as a result of sin. ...that there were a few verses which I didn't explain to you... ...and that's verse 15 and verse 21. You know, although God punished Adam and Eve for their sin... ...he also gave them the promise of a redeemer... ...who would free them from the consequences of sin. And we read of this in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. I'll read that for you now. So God says, I will put enmity or hostility conflict between thee and the woman so that this verse by the way is spoken to the serpent i will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel now that might sound like a very complicated verse on a first reading but it's actually really simple what you have to keep in mind though is that this verse is not speaking literally this verse is an allegory. So I'm going to expl- break this verse down bit by bit and explain it for you. It's very simple. We have two characters in the verse, the serpent and the woman. What does the serpent represent? Well, the serpent challenged the law which God gave to Adam and Eve. So the serpent, very fittingly, represents that which challenges God's dominion over our minds. And that is, sin within our minds, the thinking of the flesh. Well, what does the woman represent? Well, the woman is Eve. And Eve initially spoke the truth. So she represents the thinking of the spirit, or the mind of God. God's principles and laws, a thinking that is governed by God's principles and laws. And so with that in mind, let's break down each phrase of the verse. So the first phrase, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. What's that mean? Well, Very simply, there would be conflict between the thinking of the flesh and the thinking of the spirit. Adam and Eve were biased in their thinking as a result towards sin, as a result of listening to what the serpent said. And there's a verse in the New Testament, Romans 8 verse 7, which says the carnal mind or the thinking of the flesh is enmity against God what about the next phrase between thy seed and her seed all humanity falls into two categories they're either the seed of the serpent people whose mind is governed by the flesh or they are the seed of the woman people whose mind is governed by God's laws and principles There would be hostility between these two groups of people down through time. Of course, all of those people descended from Eve, no one descended from the snake, but those two people would be governed by one or other mode of thinking. What about the last phrase? It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. The great conflict between flesh and spirit would one day reach a finale. The serpent's head, which represents its thinking, would one day be bruised. It would be crushed or destroyed. How would that happen? Well, it would be by an individual. An individual would bruise the serpent's head. And we're told in that that last phrase that this individual is a man because when when the serpent's head is bruised, it results in his heel, whoever his is, in his heel being bruised. What we discover when we read more of the Bible is that this individual is Jesus Christ. He would give a fatal blow to serpent thinking, but at the same time that he did that, he he himself would suffer a temporary wound. His heel would be bruised. Well, what do we know about Jesus Christ? How do we know that he's the individual spoken of in this verse? Well, Jesus Christ had human nature. He was just like us in that sense, in that he was born of his mother Mary, and he inherited from her a nature like ours, biased to sin. All mankind has that. Jesus had that. However, though he was born of a woman, he was also the son of God. He had a miraculous conception and because he was god's son that meant that he had the strength to overcome sin so by never allowing sin to dominate his mind jesus destroyed the power of sin in himself he subdued his natural desires every day and he was obedient to god even to the point of death when he was bruised on the hill he suffered a temporary wound but in contrast he gave a permanent blow to serpent thinking. But because he had lived a life of perfect obedience, God raised him from the dead. So it was through death and resurrection that Jesus destroyed the power of the serpent thinking, and he was victorious over it. And there are two verses which you can see on the screen there: Romans 8, verse 3 and Hebrews 2, verse 14, which describe this for us. I'll read them for you now. Hebrews 2, verse 14 for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood he also himself likewise so that's talking about jesus partook of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil and romans 8 verse 3 says that god sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh or that is mortality with a proneness to sin and by a sacrifice for sin Jesus condemned sin in that very body. So those verses simply show that Jesus had human nature. He partook of flesh and blood because he was born of Mary. Or like Romans said, he was made in the likeness of sinful sinful flesh. And through death, which was a sacrificial death, in which God's righteousness was declared, Christ condemned sin in the flesh. Or, as Hebrews said, he destroyed the devil, which we've shown to be the false accuser, representative of serpent thinking. So it was through death and resurrection that Christ was victorious over the mind of the serpent. But you might say, how did that benefit Adam and Eve? Well, Genesis 3 verse 15 showed how sin would be conquered. Genesis 3 verse 21 shows how sin can be forgiven Genesis 3 verse 21 says this unto Adam and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothed them so God made coats of skin by slaying an animal and it was with these skins that he clothed Adam and Eve he provided a covering for their nakedness their nakedness represented sin uncovered and by having their nakedness covered That represented their sin being forgiven. Now, although it's not mentioned in Genesis 3, when we read wider in the Bible, we see that this slaying of an animal that provided a covering for sin was in fact pointing forward to Jesus Christ. He's the same individual mentioned in verse 15. Adam and Eve would have to recognize that one day Jesus Christ was going to come and fulfill that prophecy. That was given in genesis 3:15. he was going to crush serpent thinking destroy the power of sin and open up a way of forgiveness and in the same way that adam and eve put on a coat they identified if you like with that slain animal we have to identify with the sacrifice of christ if we wish to be forgiven of our sin one verse from the new testament demonstrates this very simply galatians 3 verse 27 As many of you as have been baptised into Christ have put on Christ. So putting on Christ means we endeavour to follow him in a way of life. We endeavour to live by godly principles and not yield to serpent thinking, just like he did. And if we do, then we can have the hope of having our sin forgiven and ultimately being made free from sin and death. Thank you.